Welcome to the Nourished and Nurturing Podcast, for two holistic-minded moms with a passion for real food and raising healthy, empowered children. We want to provide a safe and educational, judgment-free zone for supporting women as they journey into motherhood and discover the mom they were meant to be. I'm Marissa of Confidently Balanced. I'm a former speech-language pathologist turned nutritional therapy practitioner and have a passion for all things health, wellness, and mindset. I'm also a mama to a little guy with a big personality. And I'm Michelle. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner student. I have a degree in Thai massage and a master's in business analytics. I'm a mama to a little one and have another one on the way. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical concern. Hi, everyone. Today I'm talking to Sarah. Sarah grew up on a homestead in a small Midwestern town in Iowa. She's a wife and a mom of two boys, Dryer and Danger. Sarah recognized her passion for helping others and her interest in health early in life. After pursuing her nursing education, Sarah worked with the elderly and then on a medical surgical floor in a large hospital. After experiencing her first pregnancy and birth, Sarah fell in love with the miracle of pregnancy and in the birthing process. After being so empowered throughout her pregnancy, she became passionate about advocating for women through their pregnancies and birthing experiences. Sarah now enjoys working in a family birthing unit at a local hospital and assisting a midwife with home births. Having worked in the conventional medical system, Sarah has recognized a huge disconnect between health, medicine, and root cause. This left her with a hunger to learn more about health and the true root cause of disease. This led Sarah to pursue her nutrition therapy master certification. Sarah focuses on empowering women through education for a nourished pregnancy and beyond. Hi, Sarah. Hi. That is so awesome. And it's so we actually kind of got connected on Instagram and we're just chatting about like posting similar things around birth and pregnancy nutrition, like those kind of things. And then the first time we talked, we just like, I'm like, oh, maybe we could be on the podcast. And we talked for like 45 minutes nonstop about <laughs> all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, there, we definitely have enough to talk about. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel like I could talk all day about it. And it's so fun to talk about it with someone who gets it. And yeah, I totally agree. And it's super cool how we connected and the world is so small. I was just telling my husband that story last night, like, oh, I, I met her through social media, but then we know this person in common and this person in common. And so it's been super fun to connect with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's so <laughs> cool. Like just getting connected to women and, um, putting this out there. So Awesome. Yeah. So not only is your medical experience both in the hospital and at home, but your, your actual birthing experiences (laughs) were mixed as well. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's so cool. And I, looking back on it now, you know, when you're in the moment, like I planned my first um, birth at home and got transferred to the hospital. And I just, I had to shift my mindset to be okay with that. And now looking back on it, um, having my second son at home, just having so much of, uh, a variety of my own experiences really gives me a bigger picture of everything and helps me to relate and connect to more women. So it's, I just, I love it. I, I, I just have no, um, 
you know, no bad feelings about anything that happened because it was just what was meant to be. I really believe that. Yeah. Well, and that is interesting because I feel a little disconnected from some of that because I've obviously never had a birth in a hospital and I was planning a hospital birth with my first. So I got the prenatal care in the hospital and I've read about all the things, but I don't have that experience. And even just writing out the questions and things we were going to talk about, I was like, wait, what were my concerns about the hospital again? And what, you know, so I I do feel a little disconnected from that in my birth stories, but definitely a lot of compassion for all the choices women have with, you know, it's great to have options. If you're more comfortable in a hospital, wonderful. If you're more comfortable at home, great. Like, Let's just give yes. information. Yes. And that is why I'm all about like you, if you have informed consent and you have the education, then you have the power to make the choices that are right for you. So that, that's definitely huge um, for me. I'm very passionate yeah. about that. Yeah. Without scare tactics or bad information and right. And, and I'm and a statistician feel- too. So it's like, it's very like, okay, you're, you're making me worried about something, but what is the chances of that actually happening? <laughs> right. Right. And no, no judgment either way. And no, you know, it's just what's best for you and what do you feel comfortable with? And yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just so empowering. Like let's put the power back in the woman who has, I don't know, just has this, has been growing this baby for 40 weeks and might have some instincts about, I don't know, just the whole process. It's, it's interesting too, because I don't tend to tap into that intuitive side, but birth is a cool way to let you do that. I think just, yeah, it naturally happens. And that's, you know, that's what we were made to do. And our our bodies were made to do that and they know what they're doing. But in our society, we just, have not been necessarily taught to, um, just to own that or to even know how to tap into that. Um, but really, yeah, like you said, putting that empowerment back in the woman and giving her those options and and letting her know that, that she has options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, can you just talk about your background, like how you ended up um, it, you touched on it in your bio, but what led you to focusing on labor and delivery and now going to nutrition? Like, um, I'm yeah. sure there's a cool story there. <laughs> yeah. So it's been this like beautiful mess of a, like, it's just a, this mesh of things that I've been, had just have come together and I'm loving the process and really just, I'm enjoying the journey of where it's taking me. So I started off just pursuing nursing, my nursing career. I, um, I loved helping people and I really wanted to do that. And I loved learning about how our bodies work. So I pursued nursing career, got, um, finished that. And I was working, um, primarily with elderly for several years. And I loved that, but there I saw a lot of chronic disease and kind of just started to think a little bit deeper into that. And then I, I went to the hospital and worked on a medical surgical floor. So again, seeing those chronic diseases and this time with younger people though, and I just really got frustrated with the way that, that things worked in the medical world. Um, I felt like I, I felt like I wasn't helping people 
to on a, like a big scale. So yes, I'm helping people day to day, like manage their symptoms, but I felt like I was just giving them pills, like a band aid to cover things up. And it was really frustrating for me. So just kind of on my own, I started to pursue learning about more holistic options. And, you know, that kind of led me down the path of nutrition and kind of focusing on those things. Um, and so during that process, then I, I became pregnant with my first son and I was blessed to find a midwife who, um, actually, which was, that was kind of a funny story we talked about before, but how I found my midwife, I started off in the medical system and going to an, an, an OB, um, a doctor. And I just didn't feel like that was a good fit for me. So I pursued a midwife that I had, um, a couple friends here that had, had utilized her for their births. And I just, I'm so thankful for her because she really focuses and values nutrition and how that affects pregnancy and not only pregnancy, but the health of the child. So that I just, Oh, I just, I really fell in love with the process. I really fell in love with it and, um, just continue to pursue that. And then I, like I said, I planned a home birth for my first son and, um, I did end up transferring to the hospital and I, I had a really great experience at the hospital and I just felt so thankful. Um, it took a little bit of a mind shift, um, transferring into the hospital, but you know, once I got there, I was really thankful, um, for the care that I received there. And I, I didn't feel pushed into anything. Um, I felt respected in my choices. And so kind of all of that led me to really want to work with, um, work in a family birthing center, work with labor and delivery patients just to help empower them as much as I could, um, with the knowledge that I had gained. So I, I went and applied for uh, a job at the hospital that I had birthed my first son dryer at. So, and I, and I also reached out to my midwife and said, Hey, I want to help you assist uh, your home birth because I just love it. And so that's what led me to it. So, yeah. So your midwife that you saw your whole first pregnancy, she was, she only does home births. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I think that's how it is in most of the U S where it's very like, you're either a home birth midwife or you're a hospital midwife. Um, but I've definitely found that too, like what you said with the nutrition, it seems like at least my home birth midwife, there's not as much of this, you have to stay in your lane mentality, like where I feel like in the hospital, they might not be able to give much nutrition advice other than what they have on a sheet of paper from whoever up in the hospital staff. It's, I just remember those, those appointments being like five minutes and here's the heartbeat. Do you have any questions? Bye. (laughs) I'm like, why do I, why do I even have to go in for this? Um, yeah, exactly. And that's how I felt when I had my first appointment, um, with the OB doctor with my first pregnancy, I just felt like they didn't ask me any questions. How do they know what I'm doing that I mean, they don't even know if I'm have any risks or if I, you know, and I just felt like it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't what I desired. I wanted more of a relationship and, and digging in a little bit further. Yeah. And just, um, thinking about the actual birth experiences, 
like, I think both of mine were tough in different ways and I kind of needed that, like somebody there that I trusted that I could talk to. Um, I feel like if it was some stranger, it would have been tough to say like, I don't really know about this or, you know, just, I don't know, I guess being able to be vulnerable during your birth. Um, yeah. And being comfortable asking those awkward questions and being, yeah, just being comfortable in general. And that plays a huge role into, you know, how much pain you experience during your labor and just different things like that, where if you have a relationship with your provider, an actual relationship, then it makes it a lot more comforting, a lot easier going a lot of the times. Well, I think the trust kind of goes both ways too. Like she got to know me throughout my prenatal care. And I would say like, here's all the things I'm doing. I'm exercising. I'm doing this. Like she got to know not only my personality, like how I process things, but also like, yeah, she's somebody who's really taking care of herself. I don't need to, um, I don't know. She, she kind of laid off of some of the (laughs) trying to tell me what to do with certain things because I've done my research. So yes. Um, Yeah. So she's able to trust me in that process too. Like if I'm saying, you know, something's not right, this isn't working. I'm not just somebody who always thinks I can't do something, if that makes sense. Um, And that's how, you know, that's how they're better able to do their jobs and, and ensure your and your baby's safety too, because they know if you've been eating well, they know if you've been doing something that may put you at risk for, you know, an intervention or, and so just building that relationship, then they're better able to do that, their job and keep you guys safe. So I think that's really important and something that's missing in, in most modern medical, um, relationships with obstetrics and their patients. So can you specifically say what it takes to be a certified nurse midwife? Like, how is that different than just saying midwife? To be a certified nurse midwife or midwife? Um, So there's a couple different tracks you can go down. And I don't know the specific details on them, but um, you can either complete like your nursing um, doctorate and then go on to be a midwife or you can I think there's a track that just goes from like your BSN to be a certified nurse midwife I can't speak exactly to what those are because I I don't know but um but there is there are just different tracks in in the education world and so you go through a full nursing program and you're also a midwife Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. Cause that was something like people have said that too. Like what if something goes wrong? I'm like, they bring oxygen for the baby. They bring like they had an IV and there's, there's a lot that they can do as a nurse that uh, I think people are surprised at that. (laughs) uh, Like, Oh, if there's anything wrong, you, you go to the hospital. It's like, no, there's a decent amount you can do with a nurse at home. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of that. Like, oh, you're just having a baby at home by yourself or with somebody who doesn't know, but no, they're a medical trained professional and they go to schooling for a a long time (laughs) um, to do these specialized skills. And they're very capable of that and they're, they're safe. So I think the awareness, 
Yeah. I think the awareness of it is building. Um, again, it's like this, it's like this, um, revolving thing, right? Like it was really, I mean, that's all people did back in the day before hospitals. Um, and then it kind of went away as we really medicalized the birthing world. And now it's kind of gaining some awareness again. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I don't know. This is kind of a tangent, but the business of being born, uh, that was really striking to me because it seemed like, like male doctors were the ones that took it and moved it in this other direction, like made it all surgical and, um, Oh yeah. And it's like, (laughs) I, I don't know. It just, there's so much that it's like, this isn't a dirty thing. Like it's not something we have to hide or like, I don't know. It's, it's just part, it's a beautiful part of life. And yeah, if you look into the history of, um, of birth and, um, when it started being, um, done in the hospital and like, I believe it was Queen Elizabeth that made it really popular to go to the hospital to birth. And it was like this thing of, you know, stature. But if you, if you research the history of it, it's really scary and it's really sad. I mean, women, were were tied down to beds and euthanized to birth their child not euthanized but um you know they're given twilight sleep yes yes um and it's that's so sad i mean they didn't even remember their their birth process and they were treated like it's just i it makes me heartbroken anytime that i hear about it or, you know, do research on it. It's just so sad. And I'm glad that it's coming back around the other way and women are like being empowered and, um, and, and becoming more educated on how intuitive it is and, and just a beautiful process. Yeah. Well, yeah. Around the education piece, can you talk to informed consent, like what that is and what it should look like? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So informed consent should look like, um, whatever procedure that you are going to undertake, you know, drug that you're going to be given, um, anything like that, that you are given all of the risks and benefits you're talked through them and you're able to then make a decision for yourself of whether you want to have that procedure or, or drug or whatever, or not. And for my own personal experience, um, it is not, um, done very thoroughly in most hospital settings, um, from working as a nurse and from my own, um, just experience. And I think that midwives, one great thing about them is that they're bringing awareness back to that importance of that. And they really, not only it's just part of that building the relationship that we talked about, they're going to sit down and talk with you about the options that you have and really just focus on everything that's going on through your pregnancy. So for example, um, group B strap testing. I think that a lot of women go through pregnancy and, and have that testing done and don't really understand what it's for and the, the risks of, um, the antibiotics that are given if they're tested positive for it. 
and, you know, maybe don't understand that, okay, this is something that you're checked at, checked for at, you know, 35, 37 weeks. And if you're positive, then you have to have antibiotics during your labor. But you might not be positive at the time that you're actually delivering your child because group B strep is something that just kind of comes and goes in our vaginal tract. It's a you know, normal bacteria that if we have overcolonization for, um, you can test positive for. And I just think that being aware of that and knowing that, that it works that way and that you have a choice and you could say, no, I don't want to do it now. I want to wait and do like a rapid test when I'm in labor. Um, or even just being able to decline it because you've looked at the statistics at, um, what the, um, what the risk is of your baby actually contracting an illness from the, the group B strep and just being aware of all of that and being able to make your own decision for what's right for you. Um, that's huge. And I just don't see that. Don't, don't see that done very well thoroughly and very well in a, in a medical, um, situation. Yeah. I did an episode on, of the podcast with my doula and she talks a lot about this cause she witnesses the births and how different providers will give you that informed consent. Cause what it should look like, like your example, you test positive for group B strep. It should look like here are the different options. We could give the baby antibiotics after the baby's born. We could give you antibiotics during labor. That's what we recommend. Here's why. Uh, but give you all those options and give their recommendation and explain to you, here's why this is our recommendation because you're you're not at risk for A, B, and C. And I think you're right. A lot of times it's just presented as your only option. Like, oh, this is your test. You have to do this. And not even explaining that it's a hospital policy or what the, you know, what the risk is of not doing that. Um, and I, I do think they're allowed to have policies. If I am choosing to have birth in their facility, I have to stick by their policies. But there are a lot of things that aren't policies that are presented like you have to make this choice, I guess. <laughs> Right. And I, I think that that's where we could improve in a lot of areas is that presenting, like you said, presenting that information as, um, the, here's the, here's their choices. Um, we could do this route or this route instead of just being like, okay, this is what we're doing. And oftentimes the patient doesn't even know what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not educated in birth and in pregnancy and in medicine. So they don't know what questions to ask. So if we don't present them all of those different options, they don't know they have another option. Yeah. And I think I, I'm totally not even saying that we should be making different choices. If I'm a woman and I trust my provider and I just want to go with what they think, I think, awesome. You don't have to educate yourself in all of that. Like if you just want to do whatever the doctor says, but if you do and they're presenting it, like you don't have a choice, I think that's where the problem is, like where you feel. Um, and, and that's what, what happened with me switching to a home birth. I did not necessarily want a home birth going into 
my first pregnancy, but it was a choice I felt like I had to make because I wasn't being listened to and I wanted to be part of that process. I was doing my research. Um, I, I was presenting things that I wanted to, like, this is how I want my care to go. And I wasn't being listened to. Um, so that was just, you know, and that was something that I wanted. Not everybody has to want that, but, um, so yeah, I think just with presenting policy versus opinion versus, I don't know, whatever, whatever else is going around on around that. Right. Right. So, um, are there choices like other choices, like the, you mentioned the antibiotics, but things that seem mandatory in the hospital that they might have a choice about? Yeah. Um, so some things that I would think that, uh, maybe women don't, un- don't know that they have options at the hospital, um, are things like moving around during labor where I think that it's, it's, you know, with everything, it's gaining awareness that you don't have to be on your back to birth a child, but that's still a very common misconception. Um, and so if you want to be up and moving around in your room, as long as you're not on, you know, being induced and have continuous monitoring or have risk factors that you need to be monitored more closely for, or, or lying in bed, um, there's absolutely no reason that you can't be up moving around in your room, sitting on a birth ball, getting in a tub, um, going out in the hallway and doing lunges or squats and walk, you know, all of those things. And then when it comes to birthing, birth however your body tells you to. If you feel more powerful on your hands and knees, do that. If you feel more powerful squatting, do that. I think that one thing that would be really cool to see in the hospitals is to take away the centerpiece of the room being the bed. Because if the centerpiece of the room is the bed, we're all going to just like go there, right? It's just natural. If there's a bed sitting in the middle of a room, you're going to go sit on it. Um, I think it would be cool to instead just make an open space and, and have the bed be off to the side and, you know, have a ball there and have, I just think it would be really neat to see that happen and it would encourage more movement. So that's one thing. Um, continuous monitoring is another Unless you have certain risk factors or you um, have, you know, had a medication like Pitocin and being induced, you don't necessarily have to have um, the continuous monitoring. You can ask to have um, the monitoring, the monitoring taken off and just have, you know, intermediate monitoring done. Um, So that is an option that you can absolutely ask. And each hospital may have a different protocol around that, different policy around that, but that is something that you can ask for. Uh, another big one is eating during labor. So again, each hospital may have a different policy, but eating during labor is actually really important to keep our energy up, to keep hydrated. And unless you are, you know you're having a C-section or something like that, it's absolutely great to be eating and it doesn't have to be like a cheeseburger (laughs) that you're going to throw up, but, um, you know, things like honey sticks or coconut water or just light things, but something to keep, you know, keep you going. That's going to make you feel a lot better. Um, so that's, that's something that you can 
talk to your provider with beforehand so that you're aware of you know what the policy is and what you can bring into the hospital or not. Um, I think doulas are really great advocates for those things too. Um, they're able to really advocate for you and they generally usually know um, what hospitals allow and don't allow because they're usually in and out of those hospitals often. So they're a really good resource for that. Yeah. And there might be some small differences around, okay, this hospital, technically you're not allowed to eat, but they always look the other way or so that is a great local resource. But I think on online, uh, there's also a lot of resources around um, like what birth plans, like what what you want to include in a birth plan and what you can ask. And so you think yes. it's better to ask all of this ahead of time, like find out what the policy is. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I'm glad you mentioned birth plans. Birth plans are, I think one of your best tools. And I know that at the hospital I work at, we're really diligent about looking at those and reading them. And we try to do that ahead of time. If we know that you are, you know, your due dates coming up, we're really, good about reading those and, and kind of being prepared. Um, but that's a great place to put all of your, um, all of your information on and request for your birth, because that is something that the provider can go and look at really, really quickly. Um, that's something that your doula can have handy to be like, here, this is what she wants. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a great place. And I would definitely do that ahead of time and go over it with your provider, maybe take a copy into you know, your labor and delivery unit or ask them to keep a copy or take one with you when you are in labor. Okay. Yeah. And we actually did a podcast episode. It was really early on, I think episode three on creating a birth plan, like all these different things you might want to include. Uh, My doula did create mine and then send it over to me for, is this what you want? Um, Like looking at, I don't know, there are some things she addressed like lighting, like can we dim the lighting if possible and things you might not even think of when you're there in labor, but if you have it on a sheet of paper, um, it could be helpful. So maybe even if you don't use a doula during birth, that would be something you could use to create a birth plan. Yes, absolutely. So um, I think there's a, a couple more that are important. That's why I wanted to mention them. Delayed cord clamping. I do think that um, this is also becoming more popular and really pushed by midwives in the hospital. And I think it is a great thing, but I don't, I don't know that there's a huge awareness of it yet just in, um, in pregnancy and pregnancy care. Um, So delayed cord cord clamping is absolutely an option, but if you don't let your provider know, a lot of them have been doing this for a long time and it's just almost habit for them to cut that cord right away. So really make sure that you are telling your provider beforehand that you want that done because otherwise they, it's honestly like an automatic reaction for them. Um, if they've been, you know, doing it for so many years. So that's something. And then, um, if you want to save your placenta, so placenta encapsulation, or uh, a lot of people, you know, will plant a tree with it or just have different spiritual things that they do with it. Um, you can absolutely save your placenta and you, that's another thing you want to make sure that you tell your providers about right away, because otherwise that will get taken away. 
um, right after your birth. And after, after you've just had a baby, you are like not thinking about anything. So you're not going to remember to, Oh wait, no, don't take that out of the room. So, um, saving your placenta, immediate skin to skin. Sorry. On the placenta, can I ask how that works? Like, what do you, uh, if people are saving their placenta where you are, are they bringing in a cooler, a Tupperware, like, a what does that look like in a hospital? Yeah, sure. Um, so you, we typically just put them in a, like a biohazard plastic bag and we set it in a bowl of ice and, and keep it in your room in the sink. So that's typically what we do. And then you're responsible for, you know, transporting it home, however you want to put it in the fridge, freezer right away, whatever. And that's if you know, they want to keep it. Correct. Yeah. Otherwise it goes out of the room when we clean up all of the birth, um, things. (laughs) Yeah. Things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So, uh, yep. Okay. So I was going to say immediate skin to skin and breastfeeding. Uh, there's huge benefit to getting that baby right on your chest. Um, and keeping that baby there until they have breastfed for the first time. And this is something that, um, a lot of times, you know, nurses will just take the baby and put it in the warmer and do the, uh, vitals and, um, clean the baby up and do the shots, maybe all of that. Uh, that is stuff that can be done with the baby skin to skin on the mom's chest, unless mom or baby is compromised for some reason. There's no reason that all of those things can't be done with the baby skin to skin on the chest. So there's huge benefit in keeping the baby skin to skin and until the baby has breastfed for the first time. Um, Babies are better able to regulate their temperature. They're better able to um, regulate their their, uh, breathing and they are more likely to have a better experience with breastfeeding. better latch and, and, and all of that. So that's a huge thing to let them know, unless, you know, unless I or my baby are compromised, I want to keep that baby skin to skin until they have breastfed and you can check the baby's heart rate, give them shots. If you're doing that, all of those things right here, you know, in my room with my baby on me. (laughs) So just advocating for yourself and your baby through that. So that that was the few things I was going to mention to add on to that. Okay. Um, yeah, in terms of like the home birth, I I don't want to say pros cons, but like, are there risks of a home birth that you see from a medical perspective or benefits? Um, so I'm going to talk to benefits first, because I honestly, in my own opinion, I think that they outweigh the risks, but that is my own opinion. Um, the, the benefits are really, you're in your own home. You're, you're comfortable you're surrounded by things that you're familiar with. And this is going to put your body at ease and allow it to function how it's supposed to. And so I think that's a huge benefit, just just um, allowing your body to do the natural process of labor um, and not coming to the hospital you know, too early and then having to be like, okay, it's been, you're on the clock now because you, you know, your water broke. And so in this many hours, if you haven't progressed into active labor, then we're going to have to start Pitocin on you, which comes with another whole list of risk factors, um, that type of a thing. So 
I think that that's a huge benefit. Also, it's, it's really self-directed. If, like I said, if you want to go get in your tub or if you want to go for a walk outside, I mean, you're in, you're in control. And, and I think that that's huge for women, the risks, you know, I think that midwives are so in tune with their patients and they're smart. They're not going to put you and your baby at risk. They're not going to ignore signs that they see just because they want to deliver your baby at home. If you're seeing signs of compromise or if they're seeing signs of compromise, they're going to recommend that you transfer to the hospital. They're going to transfer you to the hospital. Um, so, you know, maybe if you, I would say maybe a risk would be like, if you live really far away from a hospital, that's a little bit more risky. Um, if you have a history of, um, you know, things like, uh, postpartum hemorrhaging, um, which are all, all things that midwives take into consideration, consideration when they are deciding if they'll take you as a, you know, a patient, they're looking over, okay, what are her risk factors? Is this, is, is she safe to have a home birth? I mean, they're looking at all of those things. So yeah, I, I guess that's, that's my, my opinion on it. What I see. Yeah. Well, and I think maybe a home birth isn't, well, I'll say one more risk from my perspective is cost. Um, oh, that yeah, was something yeah. that I definitely considered where if you plan a home birth and you transfer to the hospital, you're paying for both. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was. Well, and even if you don't transfer to the hospital, you're still paying, likely you're still paying more or a higher price than, um, than you are in a hospital. Cause it's not typically covered by insurance. Yeah. Um, and technically I think for mine that it is covered by insurance, but there's nobody in network that does yeah. numbers. So it's, um, you know, that that's part of it, but yeah, I think maybe I'm guessing the vast majority of people listening to this aren't having home births or planning home births, or it might not be accessible is what about like laboring at home longer? I, I think just some of what you said about the, the time, the time starting or, um, some yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, um, a really good, a really good resource is if you can find a, uh, like a Bradley method, um, um, childbirth ed class, uh, I think that would be really beneficial just teaching, teaching yourself, um, what to look for in labor and when you really need to go to the hospital, uh, versus, you know, you have your first contraction and you go to the hospital. I think that, uh, and I, I, I gave you a couple books that I think you're going to put maybe as resources, um, the home birth guide and, um, anime's guide to childbirth. I just think that really, um, digging into the labor process. And this should be something that your providers is, is talking with you about as well. And knowing when you really need to go to the hospital, you know, you're having those contractions consistently every, every two, you know, three minutes and three to five minutes. And, um, just being aware of that and doing things at home through that early labor, like, you know, 
sleeping if you can, (laughs) absolutely sleeping if you can, but taking a bath, doing things to calm yourself down, drinking wine. Um, and I know it's really challenging. At least that was the experience for me. For your first labor, you get so like, Oh, this is it. It's happening. And you get really anxious and like, okay, all this is taking forever. You try to like speed it along. And I think that as you maybe have, you know, your second or third or whatever, um, it gets a little bit, you're just, you're, you're aware. And, um, at least for me, I was like, okay, this is labor starting, but you know, I'm going to, I was at a farmer's market when I, when I started first having contractions with my second, I was like, I'm going to keep walking. And then I went to bed and I'm going to sleep. And so you kind of learn, but that first one, it is really hard not to get anxious and, and try to speed the process along, but really just trusting your body and, um, and being aware of those signs and, um, trying, trying not to speed the process along (laughs) because your body is, it knows what it's doing and it's not going to happen any faster than, than it should. And, um, so I think that that's, that's like you said, you know, staying at home longer and laboring at home longer before you go to the hospital, even if you're not planning a home birth is, is a huge benefit. Yeah. And one thing I, I saw in my second birth experience was just cause I wasn't able to keep anything down. I got dehydrated and seeing how much the labor slowed down. And then when I got the IV, like my body just kicked into gear. So it was kind of amazing to see that difference that like your body actually needs energy to be able to have these powerful contractions that are yes. I guess productive to push your baby out. So I think, yeah, if you're, if you're going into labor at night, do what you can to get a good night's sleep. Yes. Um, and cause your baby's not going to come in two hours, most likely. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm with you on that. And that was exactly like, I had heard that before having my first, I think I went into labor around noon and he wasn't born until 9 p.m. the next day. So it was like I was up all night and exhausted and it made it a lot more difficult. Like we had to slow the labor down the next morning because I was so exhausted rather than just trying to do that at night, like <laughs> go yeah. rest immediately. Yes. And I found a, a great benefit in doing, I took a hypno class, hypno birth class, my, for my second pregnancy during my second pregnancy. And I found a huge benefit in that. Um, that just, it really teaches you to, you know, breathe through the contractions and, um, keep your mind centered and focused inward and your energy inward. And there was a huge difference. And I know that there can be a big difference between your first and your second birth anyway, but there was a huge difference in my second birth. Um, I was just much more at ease and my body was able to do what it was meant to do. And I, and I trusted the process a lot more too. I didn't have as much fear around it. And, um, and that's huge. You're, really your, your mindset. And, um, if you have any like stress or anxiety about something, even if it's subconscious, your body really 
uh, shows that. And so if you can work through those beforehand, it really can help progress your labor. Yeah. And I think even that idea, like I just said of a a productive contraction, I don't think that's anything I heard until I was in labor and like wanting it to move along. Like, cause you can have contractions for 24 hours and have them not working at dilating your cervix or, um, you know, you can have pushing that doesn't move the baby down or, (laughs) right. So I think, yeah, just like giving your body the right inputs to, I I guess, like make it do what it's going to (laughs) do. Yeah. And I think going back to that, you know, what are the the benefits of being at home? Not necessarily only at home, but, um, for me personally, that was a huge benefit of not having an epidural. So with my first, I had an epidural and I couldn't feel the contractions when I went to push and I couldn't feel my pushing and I didn't know what I was doing. And it was it was like this huge disconnect that I had and I, I didn't like it at all. Um, so I actually had them turn the epidural down when I was in the middle of pushing. And once I could feel again, then it was a lot better. And, and then with my second, I didn't have an epidural and obviously I was at home. Um, and just being able to feel everything was so empowering to me. Um, I just trusted my body and I could feel what it was doing. And I just let go and let it do what it was supposed to. And honestly, I could say that for the, probably until just the last, very last part where I I actually had to bear down and push because I had a a nine bound baby in there. (laughs) Um, but I, I wasn't pushing. I, my body was just contracting and I was just breathing through the contractions. And I let my body do all of the work before, um, before I was, you know, exhausted. My first, my first birth, I was just exhausted right away because I, I was not listening to my body and, and not following it, you know? And so I think that's a huge benefit. Awesome. Well, are there any other like differences you see between working with midwives and OBs? I guess let's say both of these are in the hospital. Both are in the hospital. Um, I, you know, it really depends on the person. I really truly believe that it depends on the person. Um, I think there are great OB doctors out there and, and, you know, they, they're absolutely needed. And, um, I think there's benefit to both. I will say, however, I think one thing that I really see is that relationship. I think that the relationship is built more strongly with a midwife. Um, They're more relationship focused and that informed consent. I really believe that they, um, for the most part, do a more thorough job um, at presenting that information and um, kind of helping you through those options and choices. And, and I think that they provide a, maybe a more thorough informed consent. So a lot of times with obese too, you may be seeing different providers. And so you don't get a chance to build that relationship because you're kind of, you know, rotating in their, in their schedule. And they want you to meet everyone because you don't know who is going to be on when you deliver your baby. Um, so that's one thing that kind of hinders that relationship. And with, with a midwife, there's usually less, um, less in a group. And so you are able to build that relationship a little bit better. 
Yeah. And when I was doing my hospital birth, it was a big group. I think there were 12, eight or 12 midwives and you didn't know who would be at your birth. So I, I think it could be similar with midwives. Yeah. Still, just could depending. Be. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, is there anything else you want to share? I don't think so. I, it's been great. It's super fun to chat about. I know I could talk about birth all day. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, how can people connect with you? Sure. Um, so I'm most active on Instagram. Um, so I am at the, um, whole mama nutrition on Instagram and Facebook. So, um, you can get a hold of me there. Yeah. And we'll link to both of those and yeah, thank you so much. This was great. Yeah, Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I will talk to everyone soon. Email us your questions at nourishedandnurturing at gmail.com and find us on Instagram at nourishedandnurturing. You can find more from me, Marissa, at confidentlybalanced.com. And you can find more from me, Michelle, on Instagram at Michelle Taggy. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you like what you heard and share it with a friend. We look forward to talking to you next week.